A few weeks ago, we began this series that we're simply calling Life Hacks. And according to Wikipedia, Life Hack or Life Hacking refers to any trick or shortcut skill or novelty method that increases productivity and efficiency in all walks of life. And each week, I've been demonstrating some life hacks for you. Here's a simple one, and I didn't bring sunglasses, I should have, but if you're trying to watch a video on your phone, now some of you do this all the time, others of you are technology challenged, but you're trying to watch a video on your phone and your arm's getting tired. Well, what you can do is you can take sunglasses or glasses, but I would need them to see the video anyway, and you just set your phone on the glasses. If I had a table, it'd be easier to show you. And your glasses become a stand for you to watch the video. Now, if you don't want to do that, for $3.95, you can buy a stand that fits on your phone like this, and, and you can drop your phone. But um, no, it, and the stand broke. Well, that's okay. Um, anyway, there's a stand that normally does really well, but I just broke it when I dropped my phone. So the things that are unplanned in our services. Now, um, that's one. Now, have you ever rented a car or borrowed a car and it comes time to fill the gas tank on the car and you're pulling into the gas station and you realize you don't know where the fill tank is? for this car. Well, here is an easy way to tell, and this is true in every car. They'll project a picture up here. Go ahead. You see that little pump? See the little arrow next to the pump? That's pointing to which side of the car. Every car that you will ever drive has that on there. You're all gonna go look at your car when you go out in the parking lot, but that little arrow is telling you which side you can fill the gas tank on. And uh, that's a good thing. Now. Have you ever put on your shirt or your blouse and then you look in the mirror and the collar is wrinkled? Here's an easy thing. Some people wondered why I would bring a flat iron <laughs> to church. Well, all you have to do is heat that up and it becomes a collar press. That will work for some of you, won't it? I'm going to set that over there for a minute. And... Um, so, yeah, I'll drop it and break it, too, and then somebody in my house will be upset with me. Um, not me. My hair's straight. Anyway, straight in. Anyway, um, here's one last one. Have you ever been sitting at home alone, feeling lonely? You're sitting at home, you're alone, and you're feeling lonely. Here's what you do. Dim the lights Put on the scariest horror movie that you have in your library. And after watching it a while, you won't feel like you're alone anymore. You will be hearing all sorts of noises throughout your house. And your fear and your paranoia will probably make you forget your loneliness. You're welcome for that last one. I, I'm sure that's going to help some of you. Now, we've been having fun in this series, but the real premise is a serious one. What if there were some simple spiritual life hacks that would help you become stronger in your faith or stronger in your relationships with others? And as we have been asking each week, what if doing one simple thing could change everything for you? 
And we've been sharing pretty simple messages focused on simple ways to help you grow stronger spiritually. And today we want to look at a life hack for getting noticed, but getting noticed in a good way. I love the story of the man who always wanted to join a monastery. His goal in life was to become a monk. And so one day he went to the monastery and he asked the head monk what he would need to do to join. And uh, they had this conversation and he was told that it was going to be more difficult to be a monk than what he thought. The head monk said, in our monastery, monks are only allowed to say two words every five years. Silence the rest of the time, two words every five years. And uh, he thought that that was a bit extreme, but he said, you know, I've wanted to be a monk for so long, I'm going to give it a try. And so they assigned him a room, and for the next five years, the man never said a word. And at the end of five years, he was taken to the head monk, and he was told that he could now say his five words. And the guy said, food's bad. The head monk just kind of nodded, and he went back to his room. He was silent for another five years. At the end of the second five-year period, he was again taken to the head monk for those two words. This time, he said, bed's hard. And the head monk just kind of nodded, and he went back and uh, spent another five years in silence, and he was brought again to the head monk and, uh, for his two words, and he said, I quit. And the head monk said, well, complain, complain, complain. Our simple life hack for being noticed in a good way is found in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians is a letter that was written to a group of Christians that is having some struggles, and uh, they're having a hard time getting along. And so he gives them a life hack that will also help us. Look at verses 14 through 16 in Philippians chapter 2. Here's what it says. Do everything without complaining and arguing so that you will be blameless and pure, children of God without any fault. But you are living with evil people all around you who have lost their sense of what is right. Among those people, you shine like lights in a dark world and you offer them the teaching that gives light. The first verse is really just a part of a sentence but it is the life hack we're talking about. It simply says, do everything without complaining and arguing. Do everything without complaining and arguing. Wow. I struggle with that. How about you? I mean, this is so hard. Do everything, everything without complaining and arguing. If you understand that verse, some of you may have to rip up that welcome card that you filled out earlier. Some of you may have to apologize to your spouse for what you said this morning. See, the word uh, that the passage uses for complaining in the Greek language is used for a quiet murmuring. It is a kind of uh, complaints that are whispered in a group of disgruntled people. It isn't open conflict. It is the snide remark. It's the sarcastic joke and the quieter gossip day lunch or on coffee breaks at work. And the word for arguing is the word for open debate. It's when the person gets really vocal, but not in the proper setting. 
They don't go to the person that they have an issue with. They proclaim their issue to groups of people uh, hoping to rally support behind their opinion. We see this on social media in many inappropriate ways. And Paul is clear here. If we have the goal to be blameless and pure in God's sight, both the complaining and the arguing need to stop. This verse is pretty clear. We should work without complaining and arguing. We should serve without complaining and arguing. We should give without complaining and arguing. We should deal with politics without complaining and arguing. He says we should do everything without complaining and arguing. Does that trouble anyone else? I mean, that troubles me. You know why? Because occasionally, okay, quite often I complain. Quite often I want to debate. So if we're going to figure this one out, we might want to take a few minutes and answer the question, what causes complaining in the first place? There could be several answers, but let me quickly give you a few. Jot these down. The first is wrong expectations. This is when I expect something that didn't happen. I expected a business to keep its word and show up on time for the service call that I took the day off work for, and it didn't happen, so I spend a great deal of my day complaining about it. Or I think a company that I bought something from should have a different refund policy than what they do. And so I spend a lot of time arguing my point with them. And the point is I had expectations that turned out to be wrong. It could be that my expectations would have been a better plan than what happened in reality. Or it could be I just don't understand all the facts or the circumstances that went into making that policy. But I complain and I argue because of my wrong expectations. Another one would be making comparisons. We live in a world where people are constantly comparing what they have and what they do with other people around them. They see someone else getting a right or a privilege and they wonder why they can't have the same right or privilege. They can't understand why their spouse can't be as fit as the spouse next door or why other family members can't, uh, can afford a new car, but they can't. And so they end up comparing and then they end up complaining and arguing. The next one would be feeling entitled. And this is similar but we think because we have been a customer for a long time that we're entitled to certain privileges or because we're a member of the church uh, or because we uh, are citizens of a country, we should have different, uh, better rights. We're entitled to more or because it seems right, it just seems right that everyone should have a year-end bonus, not just the high performers, or everyone should get a trophy, not just the winning team. And many feel entitled in many different areas, and it creates some complaining. It creates some arguing. The last one would be a lack of gratitude. This may be the biggest. Basically, we overlook the good stuff that happens, and we're ungrateful, and we're discontent, and we're dissatisfied. I mean, we complain right now about how hot it is, and we'll complain in a few months about how cold it is, and we forget to be grateful for the good things that we have in life, like air conditioning on a hot day or heat on a cold day. And I'm guessing if you have evaluated your complaining, 
you would discover that almost always you're overlooking some big blessings in your life while complaining and arguing about something else. And so those are some of the causes of complaining. But someone is sitting in this room uncomfortable with this whole commandment to do everything without complaining and arguing. They are thinking, but wait, what about constructive criticism? What about constructive criticism? They are saying, but Steve, isn't there such a thing as constructive criticism? Yes, there really is. But can I just tell you, most complaining and criticism is not constructive. Most complaining and criticism isn't constructive. In fact, most of it is probably destructive. So let me give you three marks of constructive criticism. These aren't in your notes, so if you want them, you're going to have to jot them down. Three marks of how you know criticism is constructive criticism. Number one, constructive criticism is always taken first privately to the person involved or to a person who can change the situation. The first person that hears that criticism is the person involved in the situation or a person who can change the situation. Uh, Secondly, constructive criticism is always stated respectfully and it gives the person the benefit of the doubt. It assumes maybe there's something here that I don't understand, so help me understand this. And thirdly, constructive criticism always suggests a plan for improving or solving the situation. If it's constructive criticism, it will always suggest a plan for uh, improving or solving the situation. If there's no suggestion for fixing the problem, it's just grumbling. If there's no suggestion for fixing it, it's just grumbling. By the way, this is one of those things when we talk about and complain about the weather, it's always just grumbling when we complain about the weather. Jill and I, uh, 20 years ago now, when we moved to Phoenix, Arizona, we said to each other, we know it's going to be hot during the summer. And so we just kind of made a pact that we weren't going to complain about the heat There were days when we commented on the heat, but we just, it's one of those things that's just a fact of life in Phoenix, Arizona. It's going to be hot. And so we said we weren't going to complain about the heat. When we moved here, we said we're not going to complain about the extreme cold. And we've worked pretty hard not to to complain about the extreme cold. We neglected to say we shouldn't complain about the heat and humidity. And so we have complained some about the heat and humidity, but uh, when we complain about weather, it's just grumbling. When there's nothing you can do to fix the problem or you're not making a suggestion for fixing the problem, it's not constructive criticism at all. But there's no way around it. Spiritually, God doesn't want us to be negative people. He wants us to focus on what's positive. He wants us to speak words that are helpful and encouraging. And most of the time, complaining and arguing is just the opposite of that. But this passage says, if we figure out how to do everything without complaining and arguing, several positive things will happen in our lives. Let me spend uh, the rest of our time going over some of that. First, the passage says, when we stop complaining and arguing, we will sin less. Interesting place for this passage to start. When we stop complaining and arguing, we will sin less. Look back at the verse. Look at verse 14, the first part of verse 15. Do everything without complaining and arguing so that you will be blameless and pure, children of God without any fault. 
wow, did I read that right? Does it really say I need to figure out how to do everything without complaining and arguing so that I will be blameless and pure and without fault? Yes. That's exactly what it says. How can that be? Well, it can be that way because complaining and arguing really are a bigger deal than we think they are. It really is not just a harmless thing. It really is a bigger deal than what we think it is. And it's a big deal to God. If you look in Scripture at the things that God's wrath burns against, you will find that the things that he got the most ticked off about was sexual sin and complaining, being negative being negative and divisive. And so it was a big deal to God. And it's a big deal to God when he's given us so much and we're just totally ungrateful for it because we're too busy complaining about the blessings we wish we had to even notice the blessings that we do have. I mean, how do you feel when you have slaved to make the perfect dinner for your kids? I mean, you've really thought about it. You're going to make the perfect dinner for your kids, and it's going to be a meal full of all of the things that the thing is going to be included in that meal. And um, when your kids get to the table, instead of thanking you, instead of being excited uh, about the meal, they're complaining because they think their sibling got a bigger portion than they got. His piece is bigger than mine. Why did she get more than me? How do you feel about that? You see, complaining and arguing straight up causes us to sin. It causes us to sin. We become greedy for more and ungrateful for what we have, and we destroy or limit our relationships because we decide to argue over something that won't matter in a few days or a few months or a few election cycles. We begin to believe our own complaints, and we get deeply resentful about what we decided is unfair or a violation of our rights or a slight to us personally, and we sin as a result. We sin as a result. Very clearly, Paul is saying, if I complain and argue less, I will sin less. Let that one sink in. Let that one sink in. Do you have the goal of being blameless and pure before God? I do. I've focused on being blameless and pure for years, but I didn't notice this passage for years. Apparently, a path to being blameless and pure is to stop arguing and complaining. Wow. Do you want people around you to see, uh, around you, and do you want God to see you as a child of God who is without fault? Then we need to stop complaining and arguing. This one has taken some time to sink in for me, something I'm still working on. So give it some time this week. Focus on how doing things without complaining and arguing will make you sin less, because that's exactly what this verse says. Secondly, when we stop complaining and arguing, we will influence more. We'll sin less and we will influence more. Look at the verse again. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you will be blameless and pure, children of God without any fault. But you are living with evil people all around you who have lost their sense of what is right. Among those people, you shine like lights in a dark world. 
and you offer them the teaching that gives light. The passage says, we are living with evil people all around us. And I'm sure that he's not just applying this to the people who live in your home. So stop giving them the elbow nudge right now, okay? He is talking about this world that we live in. And we are living among lots of evil people in our world. And if we aren't careful, we begin to think that the fact that we're surrounded by evil people gives us more justification to complain, more justification to debate. I mean, we want to point out how they're ignoring what Jesus taught and uh, they're being unfair to Christians or how their, their philosophies and lifestyles and uh, political opinions are destructive. And here's the deal. We might be right in thinking that. Our opinions might be right, but complaining and debating and demanding our rights isn't the path that God wants us to take. He wants us to do everything without complaining and debating. Instead of using evil as a reason to complain and debate more and louder, we aren't supposed to complain and debate at all. Why? Because we will influence them more if we do everything without debating and arguing. How do we influence them when we do it God's way and keep our conversations positive and encouraging and truthful at the same time? How does that work? Well, we influence them more because we can give them direction. We can give them direction. James 3, which isn't in your notes, compares our tongue with a bit in the horse's mouth or a rudder on a ship, James says that I can use my tongue to steer people in the right direction or to steer them in the wrong direction. I can use my tongue to point people in a direction, and our terminology acknowledges this truth all the time. I mean, we say things like, I wondered where that conversation was going, or I steered the conversation around to discuss, or we came to a point in our discussion, or our argument reached a dead end, or let's not start down that path. We, we use that terminology all the time to acknowledge that our tongue can direct people. And history shows us that words can move people to action. It can inflame them or enthuse them. Words can lead people to buy something or to boycott something. They can persuade people or they can pacify people. And if we use positive words and we refuse to complain and argue, we can encourage them in a positive way to go in a positive direction, the direction that God has set out for them that is the best direction. And the passage says they've lost their sense of what is right. And so I just try to help them see the right path again, to think through what's right and wrong. There are times when I try to guide people in God's direction without even sharing with them that it's God's direction. I just point out the benefits of doing it God's way uh, and the problems with not doing it that way, and we influence them by giving them direction. Secondly, we can give them hope. We can give them hope. Verse 15 has a phrase. It says, among those people, you shine like lights in a dark world. Increasingly, the world that we live in is a really dark place. And it's especially dark for people who don't know Jesus. I mean, think about it. Without Jesus, we are without hope. 
if the only thing we have to look forward to is 80 years of life on this planet with all of the pain and all of the problems, that's depressing. If that's all we have to look forward to, 70 or 80 years here on this earth with all of the pain and all of the problems in this world, there's a word for that. Hopeless. That's depressing. But we know better. We know that this world is just a short stop before we go to heaven to a place with real hope and real joy. We know that it does get better than this. That no matter how evil or dark our world seems, we will get to experience joy and peace and rest forever in a place without problems, without pain that we see all around us now. And we know that there's hope, but the evil people around us don't. And God's intention is for us to be lights, lights shining brightly into the dark world. But when we spend our time complaining and arguing, people don't see the light. They just see more of the same. Everyone in this hopeless world has things to complain about, things to debate about. They don't see us as any different. If we're complaining and debating, why would they be drawn to us? You see, God's plan really is best because we can stand out as different when we're not complaining and debating. And that's when we'll be noticed as different. I mean, if we're the ones staying positive, if we're the ones staying happy while others around us are constantly negative, we will shine like lights among people who are living in darkness. They will be drawn to us and we can influence them because we can give them hope. Let's look at one more. We can give them life. We can give them life. Instead of debating with those people around us and complaining about how they mock or mistreat us as Christians, we're supposed to do all things with, without complaining and arguing because, as verse 16 says, we offer them the teaching that gives life. We offer them Jesus. And Jesus is the only way to access God. And that's not me being intolerant. That's not me being narrow-minded. That's me quoting Jesus. Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said no one gets to the Father except through him. And we can give them life through Jesus. We can give them life through the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross, but we can only give it when we do everything without complaining and arguing. Do you know anyone who has been brought to Jesus through some Christian debating with them about why what they believe is better than what the person they're talking to believes? People aren't one to Jesus by debating, not anymore. In the same way, most people aren't drawn towards Jesus by Christ followers complaining and boycotting about how unfair the media and the secular world is to followers of Jesus. In the past, that may have won some political points, but I don't believe it influenced people towards Jesus and towards the message that gives life at all. So do you want to get noticed? I mean, do you want to stand out in the crowd? Oh, and do you want to do it in a good way? Because it's really easy to do it in a bad way. Just one or two really bad choices can get your name in the news for a long time and people will notice you and talk bad about you. But if you want to do it in a good way, here is a spiritual hack for getting noticed in a good way. Do everything without complaining and arguing. 
shine like a light in the dark and evil world by being a positive voice, the voice that doesn't join in to the murmuring and the gossip, the voice that rises above the pettiness of people who are always complaining about how the world is unfair to them, the voice that finds a way to encourage those who are constantly negative to see the good around them. And all of that's really easy to say, but it's really hard to do. Mark Twain wrote, it ain't the parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me, it's the parts that I do understand. Isn't that true? See, here's my problem. I completely understand the teaching of this passage. It's not unclear at all. I completely understand this passage. I just don't practice it enough. I'm still struggling to practice it. But when I do, it works. It works. Let me give you two examples. Um, Years ago now, years ago, I was traveling with a tour group. We went to Israel. We stopped in Paris, France on the way back. And because of a mistake that the tour company made, we got stuck in Paris for an extra day. And most of our group thought that was a really cool thing. I just wanted to get home. You understand, it was, I was ready to get home, but we were in Paris for an extra day. When we left Paris, our flight was going to arrive in Houston late. And we had a very short window to grab our bags, go through customs, and get on the next flight. So as we were getting ready to leave the plane, I said to two different flight attendants on the plane, we have a group of about 20 of us, and we're all trying to make this plane. Would you let them know that we're here, that we're going to get through customs and get to that plane as quickly as we can? And they both said, yes, we'll do that. Went to customs. The bags seemed like they were slow like they always do. You know, when you really need them to be fast, they seem slow. And we, as we were getting our bags, I said to another person there, we have a group of about 20 of us. We're going for this plane. We're going to be right on time, but you need to let them know we're coming, right? We ran. I mean, we had um, old people running through the airport, old people that were probably my age now, you know, but then they seemed old to me. Some of them were older than that. Anyway, we're running through the airport, and I get to the gate where our plane is, and I see the door finishing closing. And there's a gate agent right there, and I look up, and the clock right above the door says exactly the time that the plane is supposed to leave. And I say, wait, 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 we're that group, you know, and they called ahead and told you we were coming, and there's 20 of us, and she said, oh, I know some of them are already on the plane. And I didn't know who was on the plane, you know, I mean, I just knew I had the majority of the group standing there with me, and I said, no, you got to let us on this plane, you know, we got people meeting us, and, you know, coming to the airport from different areas, you got to let us on the plane, and she said, I can't do that, And, and I was really nice for a few minutes. And then I was really not nice. I mean, pretty strong. And that didn't work either. And so I said, I demand to talk to a supervisor. And the gate agent said, okay. And walked over to the window and stood there like this, watching 
the jetway pull away from the plane and then the plane back away. And then she turned to me and she said, now I'll get the supervisor. I was hot. I was really irritated. And I mean, I was supposed to have been home a day before and now I'm going to be home even later. And, you know, and... Um, and I mean, the supervisor came, they took me, and I'm explaining the problem, and they're trying to work it out, because now it's just, you know, there's no way we're getting on a plane, because it's gone. And, um, and I'm, I am so upset, and I am being so strong in my words to the supervisor, that my hot-headed friend, we all have a hot-headed friend, right? My hot-headed friend is standing next to me going, Steve, calm down. Okay. When your hot-headed friend is telling you to calm down, you know that you're probably a little over the top and arguing and complaining. And you know what all that arguing and complaining got me? Nothing. Nothing. Fast forward four or five, six years, um, I am scheduled to be on a plane going to a meeting that I am running and uh, I oversleep. No excuse. I just overslept. We woke up and I raced around and got ready and Jill drove me to the airport. She dropped me off. I ran through security. I run up to the gate. The door's already closed. There is a sign, uh, another clock that I can see and it's exactly the time the plane's supposed to leave. And there is a gate agent there who says, you must be Mr. Hammer. And I can tell that the gate agent has an attitude. And I say, yeah, I am. And totally my fault. I overslept. You know, so what are my options? And she says, well, you're booked on a plane at 3 o'clock this afternoon. That's your only option. And the look on her face was, okay, let's see where this goes, you know. And I say, oh, thank you so much for rebooking me. And I just, I'm going to have to figure some things out because in my mind I'm thinking my plane now at 3 o'clock is going to leave two hours after the meeting that I'm supposed to be running is starting. But I, I say thanks and uh, I said, you know, I'm going to have to figure this out. I'm not sure if I'll just stay in the airport. It's 6 o'clock in the morning and I'm not going to leave till 3. I say, I don't know if I'm going to stay in the airport or if I'm going to come back until 3, but I'll figure it out. I said, there's no other options. There's no planes that I can go stand by on. And she said, nope, they're all full. And I said, okay, well, I'll figure this out. I went over and I sat down. I'm trying to figure out, honestly, I'm trying to figure out who I can call to come pick me up and take me to my office so that I can begin making phone calls to tell people I won't be at my meeting. And pretty soon she comes over and she says, well, there is a plane leaving in 45 minutes, but it's full. I'm sure you won't get on it, but if you want to hang around... Maybe somebody else will oversleep. Just a little jab, you know. And I say, okay, well, thanks. I'll, I'll probably wait and see. You know, and again, thank you. Thanks for trying to help me. And I'm being as nice as I can be because, you know, I'm, I think I've grown up a little bit and didn't work in Houston to be mean. So anyway. And so about 15 minutes later, she comes over and she hands me a boarding pass. She says, thanks for being so nice. We're not used to that. And I thanked her for the boarding pass. 
when I got on the plane, I was in a first-class seat. You see, doing all things without complaining and arguing really does work. So do everything without complaining and arguing so that you will be blameless and pure. Children of God without fault. You'll sin less. You'll influence more as you shine like a light in a world of darkness. Why don't we do that? Let's practice that this week. As a matter of fact, let me give you some homework. You know, this has been saying, let's not complain and argue. What's the opposite of that? That means we're going to be encouraging, right? So let's do this. Let's take uh, a little bit of time and think through three or four people, maybe five people that this week you can encourage. And let's encourage them. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to find some way to encourage them and make it pure encouragement, okay? You say something like, you know what I love about you is when you do such and such. And then watch, by the way, because it'll be funny. When you give them that kind of a compliment, they're going to kind of pause and go, because they're waiting for you to say, but what I hate about you is, right? Right? Everybody's going to wait. Just don't let there be a but, right? Just encourage them and take at least five people and encourage them this week. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, forgive us for the times when we've completely overlooked your blessings and complained about the things that we wanted that we didn't have. Forgive us, Father, for the times when we have murmured and grumbled about people rather than talking to them. Forgive us for the times, Father, when we have actually influenced people away from you rather than towards you because of our attitudes. And Father, thank you so much that you love us that you give us a second chance. Help us, Father, to become blameless and pure, children of God without fault, and help us to start by changing the way that we talk. For it's in Jesus' name, amen. We come to the time of our communion. And um, again, as I was thinking about this message this week, I remembered something that happened with Jesus. You know, one of the hardest things is when someone has ascribed motives to you that just aren't true or someone's saying something about you that just isn't true. Does anybody else struggle with that? You just want to defend yourself. Listen to what happened. I'm reading from Matthew chapter 27. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked, are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge to the great amazement of the governor. They were there casting all sorts of accusations, making all sorts of lies towards Jesus. And Jesus didn't say even one word. He didn't complain. He didn't argue. He was completely silent. Do you know why? I think the reason why is if Jesus had said, no, that's a lie, that's not true. In effect, he would have been saying, 
you know what, I'm willing to die for the whole sins of the world, except that one. I won't die for that lie, for that false accusation. And so Jesus stood silent. You know what, I'm glad he did. Because that means there's not one sin in my life or your life that Jesus is unwilling to pay the price for. When he was nailed to that cross, when he died on that cross, he paid the price once and for all, for all sin. No matter how bad you think you've been this week, no matter how much you've sinned this week, Jesus stood silent, taking upon himself all of the sins of all of the world once and for all. And that's what we remember at communion time. The bread reminds us of the body of Jesus that died on that cross for us. The cup reminds us of his blood that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray and then we'll partake. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for loving us that much that you would die for us. And Father, as we partake, we celebrate your love. In Jesus' name, amen.